The bodies of the knights of Salamnia had been laid out in a long row upon the sands of the shore of Toradon Bay. There were not many of them, only eighteen. They had been wiped out to a man. Their squires lay in a row behind them. These two had all died. There was no one left to tend the dead, except for their enemies. A hot wind swirled among the sand and tall grasses, lifted and plucked at the torn and blood-spattered capes that had been draped across the men's lifeless forms. A night officer supervised the burial detail. They fought bravely. He pronounced the dead knight's epithet. Outnumbered. Taken by surprise, they might have turned and run and none the wiser. Yet they stood their ground, even when they knew they must be defeated. Lord Ariakan has ordered us to bury them with full honor. Lay out each man properly, place his weapons at his side. The ground is too marshy to bury the bodies. I am told a cave has been found, not far from here. We will entomb the bodies within, seal it up, and mark it as a resting place for brave men. Have you examined the bodies? Is there any way we can determine their names? Night Warrior Brightblade. There was one survivor, sir, the knight reported, saluting his superior. Indeed, I hadn't known. A white-robed maid, sir. He was captured at the last. Ah, of course. The sub-commander was not surprised. Mages fought at the rear of armies, casting their magical spells from safe places, since they were prohibited by the constraints of their art from wearing armor or carrying more conventional weaponry. Odd that knights of Solamnia should have been using a wizard. That would have never happened in the old days. Still, times change. This mage must know the names of the dead, have him brought here to identify them, that we may do them honor when we lay them to rest. Where is he now? He is being held by the Grey Knights, sir. Go and fetch him, Brightblade. Yes, sir, at your command, sir. The knight left on his errand. His task was not an easy one. The battlefield atop the sea wall was now the only quiet place on the southern coast of Toradon Bay. The vast stretch of black sand was awash with men and equipment. Shore boats lined the beaches, rubbing side against side, and more boats came ashore each moment. The brutes, under command of dark knights, were unloading stacks of equipment and supplies, everything from massive coils of rope to water casks, from quivers of arrows to huge shields, marked with the death lily, insignia, of the knights of Tachysis. Horses were being ferried ashore, their handlers keeping close to the beasts, soothing their terror and promising that their long voyage would end soon. Blue dragons, ridden by knights, patrolled the skies, though Lord Ariakan did not have much fear that his landing would be further interrupted. Scouts reported that what few people lived in the nearby fishing village east of Calaman had all fled. They would certainly report his arrival, but by the time any substantial force could be mustered and sent against him, he would not be here. His beachhead established, he was planning to march swiftly west to seize the deep-water port city of Calaman, 
Once Calaman fell, he would summon the rest of his troops from Storm's Keep, the knight's impregnable fortress to the north, on the Turbidus Ocean. With a deep-water port for his ships, his forces massed, he would launch the main assault up the Vingard River and into the heart of the Salamnic Plains. His objective? To take the one place on Kryn that had never fallen to enemy assault, the place he'd spent many long years as prisoner, honored prisoner to be sure, but a captive nonetheless. To take the one place that he saw nightly in his dreams, and he could take it, he had no doubt. In that place they had taught him the secrets of their strength. He already knew the secret of their weakness. Lord Ariakan's goal, the High Clarist's Tower. And from there, the world. Brightblade picked his way through the confusion, almost deafened by the shouts of the officers, the curses and grunts of the brutes bent beneath heavy loads, the frightened whinnying of the horses, and occasionally from above, the shrill call of a blue dragon to its comrade. The early morning sun blazed, already the heat was intense, and it was only the beginning of summer. The knight had removed most of his armor once the battle was over, but still wore his breastplate and bracers, the death lily marking him as a knight of the lily. A dragon rider, he had not taken part in the battle, which had been fought on the ground. Following the battle, his talon had been chosen to take responsibility for the dead on both sides, and thus... Though second in command, he was placed in the position of errand runner. Brightblade did not resent this, however, just as his commander did not resent being placed in charge of burial detail. It was part of the discipline of the Knights of Tarkaisis that they served their dark queen in all capacities and gave her glory in the doing. Halfway across the beach, Brightblade was forced to stop and ask where the Grey Knights, the Knights of the Thorn, had set up their headquarters, he was grateful to discover that they had sought shelter in a grove of trees. I might have known, he said to himself, with a slight smile. I never knew a wizard yet who didn't relish what comfort he could find. Brightblade left the crowded, hot, and noisy beach, and entered the relatively cool shade of the trees. The noise receded, as did the heat. He paused a moment to revel, in both the coolness and the stillness, then continued on his way, anxious to discharge his duty and leave this place, no matter how cool and inviting. He was now beginning to experience the customary sense of unease and disquiet all those not endowed with the gift of magic feel around those who are. He found the Knights of the Thorn some distance from the beach, in a grove of tall pine trees, Several large wooden chests carved with intricate arcane symbols rested on the ground. Apprentices were sorting through these chests, ticking off items listed on sheets of parchment. The knight gave these chests a wide berth. The smells issuing from them were sickening. He wondered how the apprentices could stand it, but supposed they must grow used to it over time. The thorn knights carried their own equipment. Always. He grimaced at a particularly foul odor emanating from one of the chests. A glance within revealed rotting and unsavory objects, best not defined. He turned his gaze away in disgust, searched for his objective instead. 
Through the shadows of the trees he saw a patch of white, gleaming in a shaft of sunlight, yet partially obscured by gray. Brightblade was not particularly fanciful, but he was reminded of fleece-white clouds overtaken by the gray of the storm. He marked it as a good omen. Diffidently, he approached the head of the order, a powerful wizardess of high rank, known as a Night Lord. Madam, Night Warrior Steel Brightblade, he saluted. I am sent by Subcommander Knight Trevelin, with the request that your prisoner, the white-robed mage, be conveyed to him. Lord Trevelin is in need of the prisoner to make identification of the bodies of the dead, that they may be entombed with honor. Also, he added in a low voice, not to be overheard, to verify the count. Trevelin would be glad to know if any Solamnic knight had escaped, one who might lie in ambush, perhaps hope to pick off a leader. The night lord, thus addressed, did not return the knight's salute, nor did she appear at all pleased by his request. An older woman, perhaps in her late forties, Lilith, had once been a black robe, but had switched allegiances when the opportunity had presented itself. As a thorn knight, she was now considered a renegade by the other wizards of Anselon, including those who wore the black robes. This might seem confusing to some, since the sorcerers all served the same dark queen, but the black robes served Nuitari, god of dark magic first, his mother, Queen Tarkaisis, second. The knights of the thorn served the dark queen first, last, and only. The night lord eyed Steel Brightblade intently. Why did Trebelin send you? Madam? Brightblade returned, taking care not to reveal his irritation at this unwanted interrogation. I was the only one available at the time. The Night Lord frowned, deepening an already dark line between her brows. Return to Subcommander Trevelin. Tell him to send someone else. Brightblade shrugged. I beg your pardon, madam. But my orders come from Subcommander Trevelin. If you wish to have him countermand them, then you must apply to him directly. I will remain here until you have conferred with my commanding officer. The Night Lord's frown deepened, but she was caught on the hooks of protocol. To alter Steele's order, she would be forced to send one of her own apprentices back across the beach to talk to Trevelin. The journey would likely accomplish nothing, for Trevelin was short-handed anyway, and would not send another knight to do what this knight could do with ease. It must be her dark majesty's will, the knight lord muttered, regarding steel with green, penetrating eyes. So be it then, I bow to it. The maid you seek is over there. Steele had no idea what this odd conversation was in regard to, and he had no desire to ask. Why does Trevelyn want the mage? The Night Lord inquired. Steele counseled patience, repeated himself. He needs him to identify the bodies. The white robe is the sole survivor. At this the prisoner lifted his head. His face blanched, and he grew nearly as pale as the corpses laid out on the sand. The white robe jumped to his feet, to the startlement of those assigned to guard him. Not all! He cried in a ravaged voice, Surely not all! 
Steel Brightblade responded with a respectful yet dignified salute, as he had been taught. Treat all persons of rank, title, and education with respect, even if they are the enemy, especially if they are the enemy. Always respect your enemy, thus you will never underestimate him. We believe that to be so, Sir Mage, though we have no way of knowing for certain. We plan to bury the dead with honor, record their names on the tomb. You are the only one who can identify them. Take me to them, the young mage demanded. His face had the flush of fever, splotches of blood stained his robes, some of it probably his own. One side of his head was badly bruised and cut. His bags and pouches had all been taken from him and lay on the ground to one side. Some unlucky apprentice would sort through those, risking being burned, or worse, by the arcane objects which, due to their propensity for good, only a white robe could use. Such objects would not be of any immediate use to a grey knight, for despite the thorn knight's ability to draw power from all three moons, white, black, and red, each magic knows its own, and often reacts violently to the presence of its opposite. A thorn knight might possibly be able to use an artifact dedicated to Solinari, but only after long hours of the most disciplined and intense study. The white robe's spell components and other captured magical objects would be held in safekeeping to be studied. Then those that could not be safely handled might be exchanged for arcane artifacts of more value and less danger. To the Thorn Knights. Brightblade did note, however, that the white robe kept with him a staff made of wood. The staff was topped by a dragon's claw fashioned out of silver, holding in its grip a multifaceted crystal. The knight knew enough about the arcane to realize that this staff was undoubtedly magical and probably highly valuable. He wondered why the white robe was permitted to retain it. I suppose the mage may go, said the night lord, ungraciously and with reluctance, but only if I accompany him. Certainly, madam. Brightblade did his best to conceal his shock. This white robe could not be of very high level. He was too young. Add to that the fact that no high-level white robe would have ever permitted himself to be taken prisoner, yet Lilith, head of the Thorn Knight's order, was treating this young man with the careful caution she would have treated, say, Lord Dalimar, renowned master of the Tower of High Sorcery in Palanthus. The white robe moved weakly, leaned heavily upon the staff. His face was drawn with pain and anguish. He winced as he walked, bit his lip to keep from crying out. He crept forward at a gully dwarf's pace. It would take them the remainder of the day and into the night to reach the bodies, traveling at this rate. Sub-Commander Trevelyn would not be pleased at the delay. Steele glanced at the Night Lord. The mage was her prisoner. It was her place to offer him assistance. The Night Lord was regarding them both with a look of displeasure, mingled with, oddly, curiosity as if she were waiting to see what Steele would do in this situation. He would act as he had been taught to act, with honor. If the Night Lord didn't like it, lean on my arm, Sir Mage. Steele Brightblade offered. He spoke coldly, dispassionately, but with respect. You will find the going easier. The white robe lifted his head and stared in amazement 
that quickly hardened to wary suspicion. What trick is this? No trick, sir. You are in pain and obviously find walking difficult. I am offering you my aid, sir. The white robe's face twisted in puzzlement. But you are one of hers. If you mean a servant of our dark queen, Tarkaisis, then you are correct. Steel Brightblade replied gravely, I am hers, body and soul. Yet that does not mean I am not a man of honor, who is pleased to salute bravery and courage when I see it. I beg you, sir, accept my arm. The way is long, and I note that you are wounded. The young mage glanced askance at the night lord, as if thinking she might disapprove. If she did, she said nothing. Her face was devoid of expression. Hesitantly, obviously still fearing some sort of evil design on the part of his enemy, the white robe accepted the dark knight's aid. He clearly expected to be hurled to the ground, stomped and beaten. He looked surprised, and perhaps disappointed, to find that he was not. The young mage walked easier and faster with Steele's help. The two soon moved out of the cool shadows of the trees and into the hot sun. At the sight of the landing party, the white robe's face registered awe and dismay. So many troops, he said softly to himself. It is no disgrace that your small band lost, observed Steel Brightblade. You are vastly outnumbered. Still. The white robe spoke through teeth clenched against the pain. If I had been stronger. He closed his eyes, swayed on his feet, seemed on the verge of passing out. The knight supported the fainting mage. Glancing back over his shoulder, Brightblade asked, Why haven't the healers, the knights of the skull, attended to him, knight lord? He refused their help, answered the knight lord offhandedly. She shrugged. And being servants of her dark majesty, there may have been nothing our healers could have done for him anyway. Brightblade had no answer for this. He knew very little of the ways of the dark clerics. But he did know how to dress battlefield wounds, having experienced a few of his own. I have a recipe for a poultice I'll give you. He promised, assisting the mage to walk once more. My mother, he paused, corrected himself. The woman who raised me taught me how to make it. The herbs are easily found. Your wound is in your side? The young mage nodded, pressed his hand against his ribcage. The white cloth of the mage's robes was soaked in blood, had stuck to the wound. Probably just as well to leave the cloth where it was, it kept the wound sealed. A spear. The young mage replied, a glancing blow. My brother... He halted. Whatever he had been about to say fell silent. Ah, so that's it, Steele reasoned. That's why Salamnic knights had a magic user with them. One brother who fights with the sword, the other with the staff. And that is why he is so anxious to see the dead. He hopes for the best, but in his heart he must know what he will find. Should I say something to warn him? No. He might inadvertently reveal information that would help us. Steele was not being callous. It was simply that he could not understand the young mage's obvious anxiety over the fate of this brother. Surely a knight of Salamnia expected death in battle, even welcomed it. A relative of the honored dead should be proud, not grief-stricken. 
But this mage is young, Brightblade reflected. Perhaps this was his first battle. That would explain much. They continued across the crowded beach, the knight and his prisoner receiving some curious stares. No one said anything to them, however. The night lord followed behind, her green-eyed gaze never left them. Steele could have sworn he felt the fierce intensity burn through his heavy metal breastplate. The sun, dripping with red, had fully risen by the time they reached the site of the battle, where the bodies of the dead were located. The sunrise had been spectacular, a fiery display of angry reds and triumphant purples, as if the sun were flaunting its power over a blistered and dried-up world. This day would be a scorcher. Not even night would bring relief. Heat would radiate up from the sand, covering, like a smothering blanket, those who tried to sleep on it. Rest would come tonight only to those too exhausted to notice. Steele escorted the white robe to his superior, Subcommander Sikor Trevelin. Sir, here is the prisoner, as you commanded. The Subcommander glanced at the prisoner, then shifted his gaze to the Night Lord who had accompanied them. Trevelin, too, seemed surprised to note the honored company in which they traveled. He saluted the Night Lord, who outranked him. I thank you for your assistance in this matter, madam. I did not see that I had much choice. She replied bitterly, It is Her Majesty's will. The comment apparently greatly puzzled Trevelin. Queen Tarkaisis oversaw all they did, or so the knights believed, but surely Her Dark Majesty had more important matters to occupy her immortal mind than simply identifying prisoners. Wizards were strange folk, however, and the Night Lord was stranger than most, who knew what she meant now. Trevelyn certainly wasn't going to ask. He proceeded swiftly with the task at hand. Some age. If you could give us the names and titles of these knights, we will see that these are recorded, that posterity may honor their bravery as they deserve. The young mage was exhausted by the walk, the heat, and the pain he suffered. He appeared to be dazed, stood looking at the bodies without recognition, as he might have looked at the bodies of strangers. His arm resting on Steele's, trembled. Perhaps, sir, Steele suggested, if the mage might have some water or a cup of wine. Certainly. Trevelyn supplied not wine but a cup of potent brandy he kept in a flask at his belt. The young mage drank it heedlessly, probably not knowing what passed his lips, but the first sip brought some color back to the pale cheeks. That and the brief rest appeared to have helped. He even went so far as to thrust aside Steele's arm and stand on his own. The white robe closed his eyes, his lips moved. He appeared to be offering up a prayer, for Steele thought he heard the whispered word, Paladine. Strength restored, probably more from the prayer than the brandy, the young mage limped over to the first of the dead. The white robe bent down and drew aside the cape that had been laid over the face. A tremor of relief, as well as sorrow shook his voice as he pronounced the name and the title, adding the knight's homeland. Sir Llewellyn Ap Elsar, Knight of the Rose from Gunthar of Sanchrist. He moved down the row of dead with more strength and fortitude than the young knight would have first credited him. Sir Horan Devishtor, 
knight of the crown from Palanthus Township, Sir Yori Beck, knight of the crown from Kergoth, Sir Percival Nellish. He continued on. A scribe, summoned by Sub-Commander Trevelyn, followed, recording all the details on a horn slate. And then the young mage came to the last two bodies. He stopped, looked back over the row of dead. Everyone there could see him taking count. He bowed his head, pressed his hand over his eyes, and did not move. Steele moved to Trevelyn's side. He mentioned something to me about a brother, sir. Trevelyn nodded in understanding, said nothing. The white robe had revealed all the officer needed to know. There were no more knights. None had escaped. The white robe knelt down. With a trembling hand he drew aside the cape that covered the still cold face. He choked on his grief, sat huddled near the body. I beg your pardon, sir, said the scribe. I didn't understand what you said. This man's name? Magere, whispered the white robe brokenly. Storm Magere. And that... He moved to lift the cape that covered the other knight's face. Is Tannin Magere. Bending over them, he wiped the blood from the shattered faces, kissed each one on the chill forehead. My brothers. Chapter 2 Cousins A debt of honor A death sentence the parole. Majere? Steele turned to face the young mage. Majere? I know that name. Overcome by his grief, the white robe did not respond. He had probably not even heard. The night lord heard, however. She made a soft, hissing sound, breath drawn inward. The green eyes shut part way. She gazed at Steele from beneath lowered lids. He paid no attention to the night lord. Steele walked forward, came to stand beside the mage. The young man was tall, well-built, though he lacked the bulky musculature of his soldier brothers. His hair was a rich auburn. He wore it long to his shoulders. His hands were the hands of the mage, supple, slender with tapered fingers. Now that Steele studied the young man, he could see the resemblance not only to the bodies lying in the sand, but to the man who had once saved Steele Brightblade's life. Majere. Caraman, Majere, these... Steele indicated the dead knights. Must be his two eldest sons. And you are the younger. You are the son of Caraman, Majere. I am Palin, the young mage answered brokenly. With one hand he brushed back the damp red curls from his brother's cold forehead. The other hand clung tightly to the staff, as if drawing from its strength that was keeping him alive. Palin Majer, son of Caraman Majer, nephew of Raistlin Majer, the night lord whispered with sibilant emphasis. At this, 
Sub-Commander Trevelin, who had been paying scant attention, mulling over the logistics of moving the bodies, the detailing of men to the task, lifted his head, looked with greater interest at the young white robe. The nephew of Raceland Magere? he repeated. A great prize, said the Night Lord, a valuable prize. His uncle was the most powerful wizard who ever walked Anselm. But even as she talked about Palin, the Night Lord kept her eyes on steel. The Knight did not notice. Staring down at the bodies, yet not truly seeing them, he was turning something over in his mind, making some difficult decision to judge by the dark expression on his face. And then Palin stirred, lifted eyes that were red-rimmed with tears. You are steel, steel brightblade. Son of Sturm. His voice broke again as he spoke the name that was the same as his brother's. Steele said almost to himself, A strange coincidence. Our meeting like this? Not coincidence, stated the Night Lord loudly. The green eyes were jeweled slits. I tried to prevent it, but her dark majesty prevailed. And what does it mean? What does it portend? Steele cast the woman an exasperated glance. The knight had great respect for the night lords and their work, unlike the knights of Solamnia who scorned to blend blade with magic. The knights of Tarkaisis used magecraft in their battles. Wizards were given rank and status equal to that of warrior knights. Wizards held honored and respected places at all levels of command. But there was still occasional friction between the two groups, though Lord Ariakon tried his best to eliminate it. The practical soldier, who saw straight from point A to point B and nothing else, could not hope to understand the wizard, who saw not only A and B, but all the shifting planes of existence between. And of all the Thorn Knights, this woman was the most impractical. Seeing six sides to every four-sided object, as the saying went, constantly searching for meaning in the slightest incident, casting her seeing stones three times a day, peering into the entrails of roosters, Sub-Commander Trevelin and his staff had discussed more than once the difficulties encountered in working with her. A coincidence. Nothing more. And not such a strange one at that, Knights of Salamnia with a mage brother meeting their cousin, a Knight of Tarkaisis. The world was at war, though not all the world was aware of it. These three surely would have met at some time. Steele was thankful for one thing, for the fact that he had not been responsible for the deaths of the two Magere boys. He would have been doing his duty, after all, but still, it made things easier. He turned to his commanding officer. Subcommander Trevelin, I ask a favor. Grant me permission to take the bodies of these two knights back to their homeland for burial. I will at the same time deliver the white robe to his people and collect his ransom. Trevelyn regarded Steele in amazement. Palin stared at him in stupefaction. The night lord muttered, snorted, and shook her head. Where is their homeland? Trevelyn asked. Solace, in central Abyssinia, just north of Qualinost. Their father is an innkeeper there. But that is far in enemy territory. You would be in immense danger. 
If you had some special mission related to the vision, then yes, I would approve, but this. Trevelyn waved a hand. To deliver bodies. No, you are too good a soldier to risk losing, Brightblade. I cannot grant your request. The elder knight looked curiously at the younger. You do not act on whims, Brightblade. What is your reason for making this strange request? The father, Karaman Majer, is my uncle, half-brother to my mother, Kityara Uthmatar. The dead knights and the mage are my cousins. In addition, Steele's face remained impassive, expressionless, his tone matter-of-fact. Karaman Majer battled at my side during a fight when I was almost captured in the High Clarist's Tower. I owe a debt of honor. According to Lord Ariakan, a debt of honor is to be repaid at the first opportunity. I would take this opportunity to repay mine. Subcommander Trevelyn did not hesitate. Caraman Majer saved your life. Yes, I recall hearing this story. And these are his sons? The knight gave the matter serious consideration, comparing it in his mind to the vision, the grand plan of the Dark Queens. Each knight, at his investiture, is given the vision shown how his single thread is woven into the immense tapestry. Nothing was allowed to conflict with the vision, not even a debt of honor. However, the battle was over, the objective won. The Dark Knights would spend time establishing their beachhead before moving west. Trevelyn could not see that any one night would be missed, at least not in the near future, and it was always in the knight's interest to gain as much information about the enemy as possible. Steele would undoubtedly see and hear much on his journey into enemy territory that would be useful later. I grant you leave to go, Brightblade. The trip will be dangerous, but the greater the danger, the greater the glory. You will return the bodies of these knights to their homeland for burial, as to the White Robe's ransom. The decision as to what to do with him is up to our worthy comrade. Trevelyn looked to the Night Lord, who had been seething with indignation at being left out of the decision-making process. She was not Steele's commander, however, and could have no say in the matter of his going or coming. The White Robe was her prisoner, however, and she did have the right to decide what to do with him. She pondered the matter, apparently torn between her longing to keep hold of the mage and her longing for whatever ransom his return might bring. Or perhaps something else was disturbing her. Her gaze flitted from steel to Palin, and her green eyes burned. The white rope has been sentenced to die, she said abruptly. What, why, for what cause? Trevelyn was amazed and, it seemed, impatient. He surrendered. He is a prisoner of war. He has the right to be ransomed. The ransom demand was already made, the Night Lord returned. He refused. Therefore his life is forfeit. Is this true, young man? Trevelyn regarded Palin sternly. Did you refuse the ransom? They asked for what I cannot give, Palin said. His hand tightened around the wood of the staff, and all present knew immediately what the ransom demand had been. The staff is not mine. It has been loaned to me, that is all. The staff? Trevelyn turned to the Night Lord. All you wanted was the staff? If he refused, then take the damn thing. I tried. 
Lilith exhibited her right hand. The palm was blistered, burned. Did you do that, White Robe? Trevelyn asked. Palin met his gaze, his eyes clear, though red-rimmed with unshed tears. Does it matter, sir? The staff of Magius was given to me in sacred trust. I do not own it. I have only limited control over it. The staff belongs to no one, only to itself. Yet I will not part with it, not to save my life. Both dark paladins were impressed with the young man's answer. The night lord was not. She glowered at them all, rubbed her injured hand. An interesting problem, Trevelyn remarked. A man cannot be constrained to pay for his life with that which he does not own. He may go to his friends and family and ask them to raise ransom money for him, but he may not steal from them. The young man is honor-bound to refuse to turn over the staff. You, madam, may therefore claim his life. But it seems to me that this would not conform to the vision. The night lord cast Trevelyn a sharp glance, opened her mouth to protest. The invocation of the vision took precedence over everything, however. She had to remain silent until he was finished. The vision requires us to advance the cause of her dark majesty in all things, in all ways. Taking this young man's life does nothing to advance the cause. His soul would fly to Paladin. Who would be the gainer? Not us. However, if we barter this young man's life for something else, some powerful magical object the wizards of Weyrith have in their possession, the Night Lord's stern expression softened. She regarded Palin speculatively, and, oddly enough, her glance went to steel as well. Perhaps, she was heard to mutter to herself, perhaps this is the reason. Very well, she said aloud, I bow to your wisdom, Sub-Commander Trevelyn. There is one thing we will accept in ransom for Palin Magere. She paused dramatically. And what is that, madam? Trevelyn demanded, impatient to get on with his duties. We want the wizards to open the portal to the abyss, said the night lord. But that's impossible, Palin cried. The decision is not yours, young man, the night lord replied coolly. You are under the jurisdiction of the wizards' conclave. They must decide. Opening the portal is not like handing over the staff of mages. Such a decision belongs to the conclave. Palin shook his head. What you ask for will not, cannot be granted. It is impossible. You might as well take my life now. I could not. He added softly, his hand resting on the shoulder of his dead brother. Die in better company. Judgment has been passed, White Robe. You are our prisoner and must submit yourself to our will. Trevelyn was firm. You will travel in the company of Knight Brightblade to the Tower of Weyrith, there to make your ransom known to the wizard's conclave. If they refuse, your life is forfeit. You will be brought back to us to die. Palin shrugged, said nothing, not caring one way or the other. You, Steel Brightblade, accept responsibility for the prisoner. If he escapes, you take his parole upon yourself. Your life will be required in payment. You will be sentenced to die in his place. I understand, Sub-Commander, 
said Steele, and I accept the penalty. You have a fortnight to complete your journey. On the first night that the red and silver moons are both in the sky, you must report to me, your commander. No matter whether you have succeeded or failed, if your prisoner escapes, you must report to me at once, without delay. Steele saluted, then left to saddle his blue dragon. Trevelyn returned thankfully to his duties and ordered a squire to prepare the two corpses for transport. The bodies of the other knights were loaded onto a cart to be conveyed to the tomb. Palin stayed close to his brothers, doing what he could to clean the bodies, wash off the blood, shut the clouded, staring eyes. Lilith remained near Palin, watching him closely, intently. She was not afraid he would escape. She was searching, rather, for some clue. Why had this young mage, of all the young mages in the world, been sent here to fight in this battle? Why had he been the only person to survive, and, most importantly, why had Palin Magere been brought into contact with his cousin, Steel Brightblade? She conjured up the image of the two of them, walking together, talking together. She saw no immediate family resemblance. In fact, the two could not have been, on first glance, more dissimilar. Steel Brightblade was tall, muscular, well-built. Long, dark, curling hair framed a face that was strong and well-proportioned, the eyes dark, large and intense. He was undeniably a handsome man. But though many women looked at Steel Brightblade with admiration once, they tended not to look again. He was comely, certainly, but all attraction ended there. It was obvious to everyone that he belonged, heart and soul, to a stern mistress. War War alone could satisfy his lusts, his desires. His cold, proud, haughty, mean, came alive only during the charge, the fight. The clash of arms was the music he adored, the song of challenge, the only love song he would ever sing. By contrast, his cousin, Palin Magere, was slight of build, with auburn hair and a fair complexion, fine-boned, with penetrating, intelligent eyes, he reminded the Night Lord immediately of his uncle. She had once seen Raceland Magere, and she had recognized his nephew the moment she had come in contact with him. It was the hands, she thought. He has his uncle's delicate, deft touch. Cousins. The same blood running in each. Yes. The resemblance was there, in the soul, if not the body. Steele knew his strength. Palin had yet to discover his. But it was in him as it had been within his uncle. How to turn it to her dark majesty's advantage, for surely there had to be some reason the two had been brought together. Not coincidence, no. A great plan was at work here, but as yet the Night Lord could not unravel it. The answer would come, of that she had no doubt. She had merely to be patient. And so she watched. And she waited. Palin, either thinking he was alone or not caring, began to talk to his brothers. It was my fault, Ternan, he said softly, through a voice husky with tears. My fault you died. I know you will forgive me. 
You always forgive me, no matter what I do. But how can I forgive myself? If I had been stronger in my magic, had studied harder, learned more spells. If I hadn't frozen in fear, forgot all I knew, I would not have failed you at the end. If I had been more like my uncle, more like my uncle. Lilith heard those words. A shiver of awe and excitement raised the flesh on her arms. She saw the plan. Her dark majesty's thoughts were made clear to her, or at least as clear as they can ever be to a mortal mind. It had to be. This had to be the reason. The two men, one in his doubt and insecurity, the other in his haughty pride, would be each other's downfall. The Night Lord did not trust Steel Brightblade. She had never trusted him, not since she had discovered his parentage. She had argued long against his admittance into the elite ranks of the Knights of Tarkaisis. The omens were bad. The seeing stones prophesied doom. A white stone on the left, that was the father, Sturm Brightblade, renowned and revered Salamnic Knight. Honored even by his enemies for his courageous sacrifice, a black stone on the right. That was his mother, Kityara Uthmatar, leader of one of the dragon armies, renowned for her skill and fearlessness in battle. Both were dead, but the Night Lord could sense. Both were reaching out to the son who had been brought into the world by accident, not design. Though seemingly calm and steadfast in his loyalty and devotion to the Dark Queen, Steel Brightblade must be a raging sea of turmoil within, at least so the Night Lord speculated. And she had good reason. Steel Brightblade wore the sword of a Knight of Solamnia, his father's sword. And he also wore, though this was a well-guarded secret, a jewel of elven make. Known as a star jewel, it was nothing more than a token exchanged between lovers. It had been given to Sturm Brightblade during the War of the Lance by Alhanna Starbreeze, Queen of the Sylvanasty Elves, and Sturm Brightblade, or rather the corpse of Sturm Brightblade, if you believed Steele's account, had given the jewel to his son. A white stone to the left, a black stone to the right, and in the center a stone marked with a fortress. Falling on top of the fortress, a stone marked with fire. Thus Lilith read the signs. The young man was torn in two, and this inner conflict would result in disaster. What else could a fortress being devoured by flames represent? The Night Lord had argued long and hard, but no one had listened. Even the Lord of the Skull, a powerful priestess, an old old woman who was said to be a favorite with Queen Tagaisis, had recommended that Steele be admitted into the knighthood. Yes, he wears the star jewel, the old crone had mumbled through her toothless mouth. The jewel is the only crack in his iron facade. He will use it to see into his heart, and from that vantage we will see into the hearts of our enemies. Blathering old fool! But now the Night Lord understood. She threw the idea on the black cloth of her mind, much as she tossed her seeing stones. It fell to the table, clean, did not roll or tumble, landed right side up. 
pondering, choosing her words with care, she approached the young mage. You spoke of your uncle, she said, standing over Palin, staring down at him, her arms folded across her chest. You never met him, did you? Of course not, you are too young. Palin said nothing, gripped the staff of Magius a bit tighter. The young man had done what he could for his brothers. Now all that remained would be the bitter task of taking them home, of breaking the news to his father and his mother. He was weak and vulnerable now. The Night Lord's task was almost too easy. Raistlin left this world before you were born. Palin glanced up and, in that flashing glance, revealed everything, though he continued to say nothing. Left the world. Chose to remain in the abyss where he is tormented daily by our dread queen. No. Palin was stung into speaking. No, that is not true. For his sacrifice my uncle was granted peace in sleep. My father was given this knowledge by Paladine. Lilith knelt down to come level with the young mage. She moved closer to him. She was an attractive woman, and when she chose could be charming, as fascinating as a snake. So your father says. So he would say, wouldn't he? She felt the young man stir restlessly beside her, and she thrilled deep within. He did not look at her, but she felt his doubt. He'd thought about this before. He believed his father, yet part of him didn't. That doubt was the crack in his armor. Through that crack she slid her poisoned mental blade. What if your father is wrong? What if Raistlin Merger lives? She sidled closer still. He calls to you, doesn't he? It was a guess, but the Night Lord knew immediately she was right. Palin flinched, lowered his eyes. If Raistlin was back in this world, he would take you on as his apprentice. You would study with the greatest mage who ever walked this plane of existence. Your uncle has already given you a precious gift. What more would he not do for a loved nephew? Palin glanced at her. Nothing more than a glance, but she saw the fire kindle deep in his eyes, and she knew it would consume him. Satisfied, the Night Lord rose, walked away. She could leave the prisoner now. He was safe, safely entangled in the coils of temptation, and he would, inadvertently, draw his cousin in with him. That was the reason the Dark Queen had brought the two together. Lilith thrust her hand into a black velvet bag, grabbed a handful of stones at random. Muttering the incantation, she tossed the stones on the ground. The Night Lord shuddered. What she had surmised was correct. Tarkaisis must have both souls, and quickly. Doom was very near. Chapter 3 The City of Palanthas A Weary Search Not Quite fruitless. 
The heat of the midday sun poured like flaming oil on the waters of the Bay of Brancala. The noon hour was the busiest of the day on the docks of Palanthas, when Usha's boat joined the throng of others crowding the harbor. Unaccustomed to such heat, noise, and confusion, Usha sat in her bobbing craft and stared around her in dismay. Enormous merchant galleys with minotaur crews rubbed up against the large fishing vessels piloted by the sea-going, black-skinned humans of northern Ergoth. Smaller market barges bumped and nosed their way among the crowd, bringing down a storm of curses and the occasional bucket of bilge water or fish heads when they piled up against a larger craft. To add to the confusion, a gnome ship had just entered port. The other ships were hauling up anchor, endeavoring to put as much sea as possible between themselves and the gnomes. No one with any sense would risk life and limb by staying anywhere near the steam-burping monstrosity. The harbormaster in his specially painted boat sailed hither and thither, mopping his sweating, bald head and shouting up at the captains through a speaking trumpet. Usha very nearly hoisted her sail, turned her boat around and went back home, the cruel-sounding curses of the Minotaur. She had heard of them, but never seen one, frightened her. The gnome ship, its smoking stacks looming dangerously close, appalled her. She had no idea what to do or where to go. An elderly man, bobbing placidly in a small fishing skiff on the outskirts of the turmoil, saw her and, appreciating her difficulty, drew in his line and rowed his boat over. Being a stranger to these parts, are you? the old man asked, by which Usha understood him, eventually, to be inquiring if she was a stranger. She acknowledged that she was, and asked him where she might dock her boat. Not here, he said, sucking on a battered pipe. Removing it from his mouth, he gestured at the barges. Too dang many farmers. At that moment, a minotaur clipper hove up behind Usha's boat and nearly swamped her. The captain... Leaning over the side, promised to split her boat and her in two if she didn't move out of his way. Usha, panic-stricken, laid her hands on the oars, but the old man stopped her. Standing up in his own boat, a marvelous feat, Usha thought, considering that the boat was rocking wildly. The old man answered the captain in what must have been the Minotaur's own language, for it sounded like someone crunching bones. Just exactly what the old man said, Usha never knew. But the Minotaur captain ended by grunting and ordering his ship to veer off. Bullies, muttered the old man, reseating himself. A damn fine sailors. I don't know. I crewed with them regular. He eyed her boat curiously. A fine craft that Minotaur built, if I'm not mistaken. Where did you come by it? Usha evaded his question. Before she left, the protector had warned her against revealing anything about herself to anyone. She pretended not to have heard the old man, an easy thing amidst the clashing of oars, the swearing, and the harbormaster's trumpeting. Thanking him for his help, she asked again where she should dock. Over to east, the old man pointed with the pipe stem. There's a public pier. 
Usually a docking fee, but... He was eyeing her now, not the boat. With that face and them eyes, likely they'll let you in for naught. Usha flushed in anger and shame, bit back a scathing retort. The old man had been kind and helpful. If he wanted to mock her homely appearance, he'd earned the right. As for the rest of what he'd said, something about a fee and letting her in for naught. She had no idea what he was talking about. Peering through the tangle of masts, she located the pier to which he referred, and it seemed a haven of peace compared to the main docks. Thanking the old man again, rather coolly, Usha sailed her boat that direction. The public harbor was far less crowded, being restricted to small boats, primarily the pleasure craft of the wealthy. Usha lowered her sails, rowed in, found the pier, and dropped anchor. Gathering up her possessions, she slung one pouch over her shoulders, hung the other around her waist, and climbed out of the boat. She tied the boat to the dock, started to leave it, then paused to take one last look. The boat was the last tie to her homeland, to the protector, to everyone she loved. When she walked away from it, she would be walking away from her past life. She recalled the strange red glow in the sky last night and was suddenly loath to leave. She ran her hand over the rope that linked her to the boat, the boat that linked her to her homeland. Her eyes filled with tears. Half-blind, she turned and bumped into something dark and solid that caught hold of her sleeve. A voice, coming from somewhere around waist level, demanded, Where do you think you're going, girlie? There's a small matter of the docking fee. Usha, embarrassed to be caught crying, hurriedly wiped her eyes. Her accoster was a dwarf with a gray, scruffy beard and the weathered face and squinting eyes of those who spend their days watching the sun beat on the water. Fee? I don't know what you mean, sir. Usha returned, trying not to stare. She'd never seen a dwarf either, although she knew of them from Prot's stories. A fee to leave your boat where you've docked it. You don't think the people of Planthus run this operation out of the goodness of their hearts, do you, Gurley? There's a fee. How long are you leaving the boat? Day, week, month? The fee varies. I... I don't know, Usha said helplessly. The Irda have no concept of money. Their needs being simple, each Irda makes what he or she needs either by handcrafting it or magicking the object into being. One Irda would never think of exchanging anything with another. Such an act would be tantamount to an incursion into another's soul. Usha was beginning to recall stories Prot had told her about dwarves. Do you mean that if I give you something, you will let me leave the boat here in exchange? The dwarf glared up at her, eyes squinting until they were nearly shut. What's the matter with you, girly? Boom hit you in the head? He altered his voice, speaking in a high-pitched tone as one might to a child. Yes, little girl, you give nice dwarf something, preferably cold hard steel, and the nice dwarf will let you keep your boat where it is. If you don't give the nice dwarf something, preferably cold hard steel... 
The nice dwarf will impound your goddamn boat, got it? Usha's face burned. She had no steel, wasn't even certain what he meant by that term. But a crowd of grinning men, some of them rough-looking, was starting to gather around the two of them. Usha wanted only to get away. Fumbling in one of her pouches, her fingers grasped an object. She pulled it out and thrust it in the dwarf's direction. I don't have any steel. Will this do? The dwarf took hold of it, examined it closely. The squinted eyes opened wider than they'd probably opened in a hundred years. Then, noting the interest of the men around him, the dwarf glowered at them all, closed his hand hastily over the object. Platinum, by Reorx's beard, with the ruby! He was overheard to mutter. He waved his hand at the men. Be gone, you gawkers! Go about your business! Or I'll have the Lord's Guardsmen down on you! The men laughed made a few ribald remarks and drifted off. The dwarf took hold of Usha's sleeve, drew her down to his level. Do you know what this is, mistress? He was much more polite. It's a ring, Usha said, thinking he might not know what a ring was. I... The dwarf licked his lips. His gaze went hungrily to the pouch. A ring... might... Might there be more where that come from? Usha didn't like his look. She pressed her hand over the pouch, drew it close to her body. Will that be enough to leave the boat in your care? Oh, aye, mistress. As long as you want, I'll take real good care of her. Scrub the decks, shall I? Scrape off the barnacles, mend the sail. Whatever you like, sir. Usha started walking away, heading for the shore and the large buildings that could be seen lining it. When will you be coming back for it? The dwarf asked, his short legs pumping to keep up with her. I don't know, Usha said, hoping to sound carefree and careless, not confused. Just so long as the boat's here when I do come back. She will be mistress, and I'll be right with her, said the dwarf. The fingers of one grimy hand could be seen working busily as if he were doing sums. Might be a few extra charges. Usha shrugged, continued on her way. Platinum! She heard the dwarf say with a covetous sigh, With a ruby! Usha evaded the Palantha's port authority, simply because she had no idea who they were or that she was supposed to explain to them who she was and why she was in Palanthas. She walked right past the guards and through the rebuilt portion of the city wall with such perfect poise and cool aplomb that not one of the admittedly overworked guardsmen took the time to stop her or question her. She looked as if she had a perfect right to be where she was. Her poise was, in reality, innocence. Her aplomb was an ice coating over her terror and confusion. She spent the next several hours wandering the hot, dust-ridden and overcrowded streets of Palantas. At every turn she saw something that amazed, terrified, dazzled, or repulsed her. She had no idea where she was headed, what she was doing, except that somehow she had to find this Lord Dalimar. After that, she supposed she should find some place to sleep. 
the protector had made some vague references to lodgings and a job, earning money. The protector could not be more specific. He'd had only limited contact with humans during his long life, and though he'd heard of such concepts as working for one's bread, he had only the vaguest idea what that meant. Usha had no idea whatsoever. She stared and gawked, overawed. The ornate buildings, so different from the Irdas, small, single-story dwellings, towered over her, taller than the pine trees. She was lost in a forest of marble, and the number of people! She saw more people in one minute in Palanthus than she'd seen during a lifetime of living among the Irda. And all the people seemed to be in a tearing hurry, bustling and shoving and pushing and walking very fast, red-faced and out of breath. At first, Usha wondered fearfully if the city was afflicted by some sort of dire emergency, perhaps war. But on asking a young girl who was drawing water from a well, Usha learned that this was only market day and that the city was unusually quiet, probably due to the severe heat. It had been hot near the bay. The sun reflecting off the water burned Usha's fair skin even in the shade, but at least on the docks she had felt the lingering cool touch of an ocean breeze. Such relief never reached the city proper. Palanthas sweltered. The heat radiated upward from the cobblestone streets, frying those who walked on them as surely as if they'd been set down on a red-hot griddle. Yet the streets were cool, compared to the interiors of shops and houses. Shop owners, who could not leave their businesses, fanned themselves and tried to keep from dozing off. The poor people abandoned their stifling homes, lived and slept in the parks or on top of roofs, hoping to catch the barest hint of a breath of air. The wealthy stayed within their marble-walled dwellings, drank warm wine, there was no ice, for the snows on the mountaintops had almost all melted, and complained languidly of the heat. The stench of too many sweating bodies crowded too close together, of garbage and refuse baking in the sun, stole Usha's breath, set her gagging. She wondered how anyone could ever live with such a dreadful smell, but the girl had said she didn't smell anything except Palanthus in the summertime. Usha traveled all over Palanthus, walked and walked. She passed an enormous building which someone told her was the Great Library, and recalled hearing the protector speak of it in respectful tones as the source of all knowledge about everything in the world. Thinking this might be a good place to inquire about the whereabouts of Lord Dalimar, Usha stopped a brown-robed young man walking about the grounds of the great library and made her inquiry. The monk opened his eyes very wide, drew back from Usha about six paces, and pointed down the street. Following his directions, Usha emerged from an alley into the shadow of a hideous-looking tower surrounded by a grove of dark trees. Although she had been sweating moments before, she now shook with sudden chills. Cold, dank darkness seemed to flow from out of the woods. Shivering, she turned and fled and was actually relieved to find herself once again in the baking sunlight— as for Lord Dalimar, Usha could only imagine that the monk had been mistaken. No one could possibly live in such a dreadful place. 
she passed a beautiful building that was, by its inscription, a temple to Paladine. She passed parks, and the magnificent yet sterile-looking homes of the wealthy, Usha took them to be museums. She passed shops filled with wondrous objects, everything from sparkling jewels to swords and armor such as the young knights had worn, and always hordes of people. Lost and confused, not sure why she'd been sent to this bewildering city, Usha continued to wander the streets. She was weakened by the heat and weariness and only gradually became conscious as she walked along that people were staring at her. Some actually came to a halt and gazed at her in gaping wonderment. Others, generally men who were fashionably dressed, doffed their feathered caps and smiled at her. Usha naturally assumed they were mocking her appearance, and she thought this very cruel, bedraggled, miserable, feeling sorry for herself. She wondered how the protector could have sent her to such a hateful place. Gradually, however, she came to realize that these stares and cap-doffings and bowings were admiring. Having some vague idea that the journey had altered her appearance, Usha halted to study her reflection in the glass window of a shop. The glass was wavy and distorted her face. But then so did the water of the small pond she was accustomed to using for a mirror back home. She hadn't changed. Her hair was still flaxen silver, her eyes still their odd color, her features regular but lacking the molded, crafted, exquisite beauty of those of the Irda. She was as she had always been, in her own eyes, homely. What very strange people, Usha said to herself, after a young man had been so occupied in staring at her that he'd accidentally walked into a tree. At length, when she'd nearly worn the soles of her leather boots through, Usha noticed that the hot sun was finally setting. The shadows of the buildings were growing longer and a hint cooler. The number of people on the streets diminished. Mothers appeared in doorways, shouting for their children to come home. Looking through the windows of several fine houses, Usha saw families gathering together. She was worn, weary, alone. She had no place to spend the night, and she realized she was ravenously hungry. The protector had supplied her with food for her journey, but she'd eaten all that before she had sailed into Palantas. Fortunately, however, she had accidentally wended her way into the merchandising section of the city. The vendors were just closing up their stalls prior to calling it a day. Usha had been wondering what people did for food in this bustling city. Now she had her answer. Apparently, people didn't serve food on tables here in Palanthas. They handed it out in the streets. Usha thought that rather odd. But then everything in this city was odd. She drew close to a booth that had a few odd pieces of fruit left on it. The fruit was withered and dried, having baked in the heat all day. But it looked wonderful to her. Picking up several apples, Usha bit into one, devoured it, and stuffed the rest into one of her pouches. Leaving the fruit vendors, she came to a baker and added a loaf of bread to her meal. Usha was glancing about, searching for a booth offering wine, when an unholy commotion burst out around her. Catch her! Hold her! Thief! Thief! 
Chapter 4 An Assault Arrested Tasselhoff is Surprised Usha stared in amazement at a tall, thin man in a leather apron who danced and bobbed around her. Thief! he cried, pointing at her. She stole my fruit! She ran off with my bread! panted a flower-smudged woman who had been running after the man. That's it! Sticking out of her pouch! I'll have that back, you hussy! The baker made a grab for the bread. Usha slapped the woman's hand away. The woman began to howl, Murder! She tried to murder me! The idlers and ruffians who generally hung about the market, swilling raw wine and waiting for trouble, were quick to sniff it. A jeering crowd gathered around Usha. A ragged and uncouth-looking man grabbed hold of her. I'll volunteer to search her, he yelled. Looks to me like she's got those apples stuffed down her blouse. The crowd laughed and pressed closer. Usha had never experienced such rough treatment. Pampered, coddled, brought up among a society of people who didn't raise their voices, much less their fists, she was shocked almost senseless. She had no weapons, and it didn't occur to her in her initial panic to use the magical items the Irda had given her. She wouldn't have known how to use them anyway, having paid scant attention to the instructions given her. The man's filthy hands tore her blouse. His fingers groped to touch flesh. His fellows cheered him on. Panic gave way to fury. The ferocity of a cornered animal burned in Usha. She lashed out wildly with strength born of terror. She hit and bit and kicked and flailed, not knowing, not caring who she hurt, wanting to hurt them all, wanting to hurt every living being in this hateful city. It was only when strong hands took hold of her arm, clasping it and giving it a painful twist and a clear, firm voice said, You know, stop this young woman that the blood-tinged mist cleared from her eyes. Usha blinked, gasped for breath, and peered dizzily around. A tall, muscular man dressed in a dull, crimson-colored tunic and leggings, with an official air about him, had hold of her. At his arrival, the crowd rapidly dispersed, with varied and colorful comments about guardsmen who spoiled their fun. The man who had accosted her lay on the ground, groaning and clutching his private parts. Who started this? The guardsman glared around. She stole bread from my stall, Yonner, cried the baker, and then she tried to murder the lot of us. Them's my apples, accused the fruit vendor. She walked off with them, just as cool as cucumbers. I never meant to steal anything, Usha protested, snuffling a little. Tears had always worked with Prot when she was in trouble, and she was quick to fall back on old habits. I thought the fruit and the bread were set out for anyone to take. She wiped her eyes. I didn't mean to hurt anyone. I'm tired, and I'm lost, and I'm hungry. And then that man, he touched. The tears came for real at the horrible memory. The guardsman gazed at her helplessly, attempted to comfort her. Now, now, there, don't cry. The heat's likely adulpated you. Give these two fair payment and we'll call it even, won't we? The guardsman added, with a glowering glance at the two vendors, who glowered back but nodded, grudging assent. 